Well, um, we are, we've uh, concluded our series looking at the encounters of Jesus, and um, Jim did a killer job last weekend. I've actually been hearing about it all week. Um, often it comes with a backhanded slam. We'll be like, that's the best sermon I've heard in years. <laughs> that kind of thing. It's like, yes, yes, I know. I know. Jim calls me the best preacher in the Presbytery after him. Nah. <laughs> These are the kind of backhanded compliments I get from Jim. Um, <laughs> But we all, I agree with it too. Jim, you just did a killer job as we continue to focus on, um, hey, we, we want to be a people who encounter Jesus, but also when we encounter Jesus, to be able to, we, we don't just encounter Jesus for ourselves, but so that we might tell other people the story of Jesus. And so we want you to be able to prepare to do that. So we're diving back into Ephesians. Now, for some of you that are new, you don't know that we've been in Ephesians for the last, I don't know, three, four years. We're going on half a decade uh, my dad did five years in Ephesians, so as long as I get done before that, I feel pretty good. Uh, but we are diving back into Ephesians. So let me give you some review. Let me give you some review, and then we're going to read the passage this morning. Ephesians 1 and 2 is, tells us that we have been brought by grace through faith to receive and experience the salvation we get in Jesus Christ. There's the famous passage there that you are saved by grace, not by works. And so that we, in Christ Jesus, in this salvation, are given the richest of blessings, an inheritance, adoption as sons, the power of the Holy Spirit, blessing after blessing after blessing. Then, having learned about this salvation that we've been brought into, chapters 2, 3, and 4, tell us about the reconciliation we now have through Christ Jesus. Not just reconciliation with God the Father, but then reconciliation with one another, so that we are then brought together in unity and rec- as a reconciled people. In other words, it's about the church and, and how we are unified around one Lord and one faith and one baptism and the mystery of the gospel. Then beginning in chapter 4 and carrying on to chapter 5, we learn that we have been given a new life. A new life that is very much defined by this, a walk in love. That we walk in the love of God and a love towards others. It says this in Ephesians chapter 4, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have received. This is the Christian life, a walk of love. And then in chapter 5, we hear how walking in a manner worthy of our calling means we walk in love, and that if we're going to do that, well, we need to be filled with the Spirit. The only way you can love is to be filled by the power of the Holy Spirit because we don't have that power in and of ourselves. And then Paul begins to list out, he says this, if you're, if you're filled by the Spirit and you're walking in love, there's going to be certain things you're going to do. And in chapter 5, verse 21, he comes to this. He says that those who walk in love will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so he begins to, to dive into individual relationships at that point. To say, what does it look like for us in our relationships to submit to one another? And we spent the entirety of the fall uh, in 2022 looking at what does it look like to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ as applied to our marriages. Then going out, we're now beginning chapter 6, and Paul is going to continue this idea of walking in love and submitting to one another by the power of the Holy Spirit in a few other relationships. There's going to be uh, two particular or two, two settings. One is the house between parents and children and children to parents, and then masters to slaves and slaves to masters, or our bosses and workers. And so that is where we're going to go for the next four weeks. We're going to begin looking at house rules. 
So house rules part one, two, three, and four. This morning we begin with the children. So chapter six, verses one through three, I'm going to read out loud God's word. You can read along in your own Bible. It's also up there on the screen. So here's God's house rules for children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. This is the reading of God's holy, errant, and infallible word. Praise be to the Lord. So you're familiar with house rules, right? Everybody has them. Like, you walk, I mean, you, there may be unspoken, but you, you begin to feel them and sense them, what the house rules are. For example, in my house, you know, I think one of the house rules that I, my kids could say is, don't talk to mom until she has had her, what? Coffee, exactly. Or this is the one, this is the one I think all, in fact, neighborhood children know this rule. Don't touch mom's flowers Ever, 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 ever. All right? Here, I think this is another one that, you know, it's one of those as a parent, you didn't know they needed to be said, but eventually you begin to have to say it out loud. Hey, when people come over, you need to wear pants. It's a positive thing to wear pants. Uh, people come to the house. If you don't pay the bills here, you are not allowed to touch the thermostat or the TV remote. That's a really solid house rule. Hey, here's a few others. Uh, here's some house rules. I like some of these. If you want breakfast in bed, sleep in the kitchen. That's a good house rule. All right. All right. Clean up after yourselves. House elves don't work here. I think there's some great examples of some house rules that you can have. Well, what Paul is doing is providing house rules for the church. He's saying, hey, listen, in our various relationships, marriage, parents and children, workers and bosses, here's how we're to interact with one another. And what is the house rule? For children amongst God's household. It's one word. Obey. Obey. Now sometimes it doesn't seem like, you know, it doesn't seem like the most simplest commands are the most difficult ones to follow, though. One word, obey, obey, and that is simple to understand, but very, very difficult to follow. The house rule God gives to children is the primary means of loving God of walking in love, of submitting in reverence to Christ, is children obey your parents and honor them. So let's begin simply by looking at what we, what we understand and what we mean by obedience. So the call to obedience for you kids, the most fundamental and basic and foundational element and training ground of a, of a child's discipleship is obedience to their parents. The call for you kids is obey. Now the Greek word for obey This is really important, means obey. Do you understand that? Actually, I am going to tell you what the Greek word literally means. What the Greek word literally means is to listen under. It means that you you have an ear for hearing their commands and that you put yourself under their authority. You're not side by side with your parents determining whether what mom and dad say has validity, but you are under their rule and their care. So, you know, one fairly normal eight-year-old will tell his dad, his dad tells him something to do. And, you know, an inquisitive eight-year-old eventually might respond, if you would explain to me why I need to do it, then I'll go ahead and do it. And the dad says what? No, son, if you do, if you only do 
what I tell you to do, when it makes sense to you, that is an agreement. That is not obedience. Kids, we are not asking for your agreements. We are asking for your obedience. Listening under means you do not hold yourself out as the arbiter of right and wrong in regards to your parents' commands, even if you think you indeed know best. And some of you think you know best. And understand this, Jesus even did this. Jesus, in following the fifth commandment and living a perfectly righteous life, there's this account in Luke chapter 2 where Jesus is 12 years old, and they go up to Jerusalem for one of the festivals, and, they, and they, the whole family, the clan of Jesus' family, they start heading back from Jerusalem, and they've lost Jesus. Because Jesus, what is Jesus doing? He is in the temple, and he's talking to the religious leaders and scribes of that day. And they are amazed, it says, the greatest religious minds of the day are amazed by 12-year-old Jesus' knowledge. Jesus truly did know better than his parents. And yet, what does it say in Luke chapter 2? That his parents show back up and say, hey, what gives? Why didn't you come with us? And Jesus gives them a submissive answer. And then it says this, that he went back and lived under the fear and submission of his parents. That even Jesus, who unlike you and me, who only think that we know better than our parents, he actually did know better than his parents, and yet he was willing to submit himself to their rule in his life. And obedience is not simply outward actions, is it? It's a disposition to obey, right? Every parent has experienced this kind of thing. The story of the little boy whose mom tells him to go sit down in the corner, and so he ignores her, and so she tells him again to go sit, he tells her, the child again to go sit down, and he didn't obey. And finally, she says this, go sit down this second, or you're going to get further or worse disciplines. And so the little boy goes and sits down in the corner, and he folds his arms, and he says, I'm sitting down physically, but inside, I'm standing up. This is the attitude many of us have when it comes to obedience, isn't it? Even us adults have this, that I, I, outwardly... I'll obey, but inwardly, I'm pitching a fit. I don't have a spirit of obedience or a desire to obey. And then we actually even see the, the scope of obedience in God's word. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, a parallel passage in another one of Pauline's letters, it said that children are to obey their parents in everything. That does not mean that you obey them when it benefits you. It does not mean that you obey them only when you understand why they would command us such a thing, but you obey them in everything. Now, let's, let me just pause and give a caveat here. You don't actually have to obey your parents in one situation, and that is when your parents give a direct command that would directly disobey the clear commands of God's word. God gives us the same, a similar idea in Romans, doesn't he? That when the governing authorities tell us to do something that would be a direct contradiction to the law of God, that it's there and only there that we can violate the government's rule and authority over us. But understand this, your parents, both you and your parents, are called to submit to an even higher authority. Your parents don't have the right to tell you to do something or to participate in something that is clearly wrong. But their call needs to be clearly wrong in order for you to disobey it. But I say it, they put it this way, that if they tell you to do something that is wrong, that, that, that the wrongness of that command needs to be as clearly wrong as is the positive command, which is to say, obey your parents. 
It's very clear in the Bible. It says, children, obey your parents. And therefore, if they're going to tell you to do something that is disobedient, that disobedience that you look at and says, that as equally violates the clarity of God's scripture. So that's the only time that we're given an opportunity, a caveat in which we can disobey. Now, I will ask this one other side note on this. How long must a child obey? How long? At what point do you stop being a child? Well, I'm still a child. I mean, everybody here is a child. I have a mommy and a daddy. They're still living. So do I still need to obey them? This has been something that has been debated throughout church and Christian history. Every society has its different norms, doesn't it? In our particular culture, it seems right around 18 years old is kind of the place that we have put as when you move from childhood into adulthood, and that gives you certain rights and certain responsibilities. In other cultures, it's been more when you hit adolescence. In some places now, I mean, right, some people may view this as being when you roll off your parents' health insurance. So what is that now? 38, 39? I'm not sure what the rules are. So at some point, though, we have a sense of when we have moved from being children. I would say the practically the wisdom, the principle I would go by is to the degree that you're living still under their, um, their care. So if you live in your parents' household and you're 28 years old, to a degree you do need to obey them because you're living in their household. If they're still supporting you financially, and then you still have to obey them. But to the degree that you have become freak free, you come out from under their rule and you're, on, you're responsible for yourself only and become independent, that is the time in which you'd see a transition in which you move out of sheer obedience and you move into the second level of this. And that is honor. Because what does Paul quote here? He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And then he quotes the fifth commandment. And the fifth commandment actually has a broader umbrella. Obedience is only one application of the, of the command in the fifth commandment that says, honor your father and mother. And what is this command actually pressing in on us? And I think this is important. It doesn't say love your parents. It doesn't say trust your parents or even admire your parents. It doesn't say this because to trust your parents for some of you is foolhardy. Because for some of you, you had evil parents. They were utterly wicked. They were abusive and they were dishonorable. It doesn't say to admire your parents because in some cases, your parents were not admirable people. But it does say to honor your parents. He's quoting here from the fifth commandment. This is the broader category. And so what does honoring your parents mean? And this is gonna go beyond simply for little children, but this goes for all of us for all time, even when your parents are no longer living. The word for honor in the Hebrew is kabed. Is the, is, that's the word there. And what it literally means is weight. It means to treat your parents not lightly but as, or as in, insignificant, but as significant in your life. You take seriously their role and the place that God has given them as the first and primary authority and responsibility in your life. And by the way, they are inherently significant in your life, aren't they? By the fact that they produced you makes them rather significant. You would not be here if it was not for them. So let me connect this. And what this means is this. Because one of the challenges that we have, this is in the ether today, particularly in our very therapeutic world, is we are constantly talking about our parents' failures, aren't we? Then the world of going, man, this is the, the trauma, big T, little T traumas that I experienced in my parents' household. And for some of you, you've actually pushed back against this. 
And you believe that that would be dishonoring to talk about your parents' failures. And some of you actually are dishonoring your parents in the way you speak about them. But by, by this rule and this principle of saying that the, the call here is to give weight to your parents and significance to your parents, one of the ways in which you actually give significance is to say, if they had this level of significance, then the hurts that I experienced by them are going to be more significant than most other relationships. And actually part of giving significance and weight to that relationship is acknowledging that their wounds hurt more deeply. And then actually in a means of seeking to honor them, maybe inviting them into a process of healing and restoration and reconciliation. But that you do so, you have those conversations, you process through those things, but in a way that actually sees, man, this relationship is important. And I long for this relationship to be good. And I want to bring myself to a place where I can speak with honor and care for my relationship with them and about them. God is declaring the worth of parents here. Just put a pause, I've been speaking kind of the, from the, the child angle, but I'll speak to you parents for just a second. Did you know that God says that you're a gift? That you're of incredible value? And sometimes when you have little, little people rising up and saying, I hate you, <laughs> or I don't want you in my life, this task can be incredibly difficult, can it not? And it actually feels like you're being drugged through the mud, but Jesus actually says, and God says, that this role is incredibly weighty. It has value, and you have value. And so house rule number one, obey your parents. That's the call, obedience. Well, that rule is simple, but why has God given us that rule? It's, it's interesting, the graciousness of God, isn't it? The, he is the ultimate ruler and authority in our lives, and he tells us to do something that we, just like little, little kids everywhere, that we want to say, why, God? Why have you told us to obey and honor our parents? And you know what? God has every right to look at us and say, just because, and to give no reasons why. Just because, because I'm God and you're the creation, so do it now. But God in his graciousness will actually stoop to, to, to listen to our questions and our longings for why and to answer them. And so what we see here is that God gives us a case through the words of Paul here, a case for obedience. And so that's the second thing we're going to look at. So the call to obedience and now the case for obedience. And Paul really gives us two reasons, children, for why we should obey. All right? Parents, learn this. This is good ammo. Hint, hint. All right? Here's the first thing. Reason one, kids, for why we should obey our parents. Because it is right. The reason you need to honor your father and mother is not because that they're wiser than you or simply because they're older than you or because they're bigger than you, that's, because those things aren't necessarily true. Some of you are quite a bit larger than your parents. Some of you may even be wiser than your parents. The Bible doesn't even say obey your parents because they're less sinful, because that's maybe not true either. But the real question is why do it? And the answer to the Bible is simply because it is right. Just because it's right? That's it? Well, what the law of God tells us and what Proverbs then repeats for us, and what Paul presses into us is this, that there is a moral arc to the universe. There is a moral order to things. In Romans chapter 2, Paul in that, in that book says this, he says that the word of God, that even for those that do not have the word of God, that humanity has a sense of this moral order. 
that we have a sense that there's a God who's made this world. There's a God who rules this world and that he's put certain order, a natural order to this world that is, has a morality to it. In the medieval church, the command to obey parents was considered what was called natural justice or natural or common revelation. That is that it was not dependent on the word of God for us to understand that this is something that we need to do. In other words, they're saying it is built in. It's inherent into the fabric of humanity that we instinctively know that a child ought to obey his or her parents. In the ancient world, non-Christian people in, in, in all societies believe that children need to obey their parents. In the Eastern cultures even now, which has even less, you know, has very little contact to Western Christianity and influenced by Western Christianity, holds even more strongly than we do in the West to the understanding that children are to obey their parents. They don't need the Bible to tell them that. Plato himself said this, on the scale of human decencies, honor of parents is second only to honoring God. And which throughout history and in thought, this has been what has been said. In Romans chapter one, Paul lists off a number of awful things that human beings do when they are set up, when they are apart from God and when they run from God. And he lists idolatry and adultery and murder. And then he says, and the disobedience to parents. It's like, man, that's in quite the category of sins. But what he is saying in Romans chapter one is that disobedience to parents is one of the chief and earliest signs of church and cultural unraveling. That when this happens, it means that there is a unraveling happening in the fabric of society itself, and therefore the consequences of it are so, so dire. Because when we fail to keep this law, when this happens at a societal level and across the board, we will respect no authority. To ignore the rightness of the moral order that God has put into this world is to cause an unraveling in your life and in society as a whole. So let me tell you a story that the Brothers Grimm told a long time ago that they were trying to get along across this point. You know the Brothers Grimm? You know, they, you know, they usually have scraggly, crazy trees, scary toys. I think it's like Hansel and Gretel, that kind of stuff. All right, so Brothers Grimm fairy tale story goes like this. There was a little old man, and he had gotten quite very senile in his old age, and he was confused about things, and, and with that, he would get particularly messy at the supper table. He was always dropping things and splattering things all over himself, and he lived with his married son and his daughter-in-law, and, and, and his son and his wife's, uh, his, his, his son's wife particularly had grown frustrated with this father, that he had become to be seen by them as really just a, a nuisance and a bother because of the messes that he would create. And one day after a particular messy session at the dinner table, the daughter-in-law said, that's it. And she led him out of the room into another room and placed him into a corner and gave him a bowl and said, this is where you'll eat from now on. A number of weeks went on with the old man quite confused by this, kind of just kind of blinking, eating his porridge all by himself in the corner. And then one day, he picked up his porridge bowl and he dropped it, not only making a mess, but then destroying and shattering the bowl itself. And the daughter-in-law said, that's it. If you're going to eat like a pig, then you might as well eat like a pig. And she stormed out of the house and she went out to the barn and she grabbed a pig trough and she brought it in, she put it in front of him, and she said, from now on, this is what you're eating out of. And that's how she would serve him his meals. Well, it was some weeks later that the son and the daughter-in-law saw their own little boy 
was out in the yard carving something. And they said, what are you working on? And he looked up to them and said very proudly, I am carving you and daddy a feeding trough so that when you grow up, when you get old and I grow up, I can feed you out of it. And the response in the story then ends with the son and the daughter-in-law realizing and having their eyes open to the horrible way in which they have been treating their father, and they just weep and break down in tears. Now, what is the point of that story, and what are the brothers Grimm trying to say? They're saying this, that to show dishonor and disrespect children to parents is this thing, these things spread, and they spread from one generation to the next, and they don't think it's just spread in one family, that they spread out horizontally into all society, such that society, the very fabric of it, can break down. A society that destroys the family destroys itself. And if you eliminate honor in the family, you eliminate honor, period, to all authority in society. The logic is stated this way by St. Augustine in the early church. He puts up for this rhetorical question. If anyone fails to honor his parents, is there anyone he will spare? In other words, if you will not, when you will not honor the ones who gave birth to you, who give life to you, who care for you, who wake up in the middle of the night for you, who feed you, who provide a house over you, like, how are you going to honor the government, which does none of those things, and you have to pay them money? Right? They love you, and it demands and calls for respect. And if you cannot love them back, if you cannot honor them back for these things, how will you honor anybody and any other authority structure in the world. God intends the family to be our first hospital, our first school, our first government, and our first church. And if we are unwilling to honor the family as the proto-institution in your life, that means the first, the primary before, then you will honor no other society. So that's one reason. It's right. It's right. Do it. It's right. Honor your father and mother. But the other, there's another side to it, though, which is the blessings. And that's what Paul also points to. That if you honor your father and mother, and he points out that the fifth commandment comes is the first commandment that come with a promise. Saying that if you obey your father and mother, life is going to go well for you. Proverbs repeats this. Here's what Proverbs says. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. This is the theme to Proverbs over and over and over again, isn't it? The father speaking to his son. He'll give him a command. And actually, even before you give him the command, he'll say, listen, I'm about to tell you something. And obeying my command is going to, it makes life go well for you. And then he gives him the command, and then he repeats it and says, now listen to my commands, because it's going to help life go well for you. Now, we immediately become skeptical to this, don't we? What about those obedient kids who died young? What about them? This doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem like honest to the Bible to say this. Well, the writers of the Bible were not dumb. They lived in a real world where people died and some people died young. It wasn't like everyone who said, yes, sir, or no man lived to be 100 years old. They knew that. He's not saying, hey, if you get 10 obedience points this today to your parents, that you get an added year to your life. That's not what is being promised here. The promise here, though, is, live, is, is the, the fallout or the consequences, the fact that God acknowledges that he has placed a moral arc in this world. And it's a recognition of the way the world works the way in which God has designed things. That this is not a blanket assurance that every individual who honors his father and mother will live longer than an individual who does not. But God is saying that generally, for you and for society, 
That if you honor your father and mother, generally speaking, things go better for you when you obey your parents. Kids, did you know that God has given your parents to you as a gift? They're a gift. And they're there to protect you and to lead you and to guide you. So often for us children, especially as we get older, our whole goal is to try to alleviate their authority in our life and to get out from under it. But actually, it's a gift of God and that your life will go better, generally speaking, if you listen and abide by their rules. A number of years ago, I had a pastor friend who told me the story of a, of a, a college girl who was in his church, and um, she asked him one day after church, she's like, hey, can we get together? I have some things I want to talk to you about. Um, and uh, she comes in, he goes, well, how can I help you? And she had a sheet of paper that she gave this pastor, and she said, on the top of the sheet of paper, it said, rules for dating by dad. And, and the pastor was like, uh-oh, this girl's going to ask if she really has to follow these rules. And I don't want no part of this. But then she said this. Actually, he said, well, how can I help you with this list of rules? And she said, I want to know how I can best keep these rules. He understood that she actually was meeting not for trying to get out from under it, but she had a perspective that says, I understand that my father's rules are best. And so the rules were things like this. Here are certain places I don't want you to go on a date. And here's what time I would prefer you to be home because this will keep you safe. And these are the kind of people that I'd like you to go out with because I don't want schmucks in your life. And she realized these are not things that are supposed to be to keep the ark that God has created and under the rule that God has given you in your life through your parents. Many of you know that Ed Hogan, who's gone as his half our band at a one-year-old's birthday party in North Carolina this week, but Ed Hogan um, develops music and he actually will go to Nashville a couple times a year and orchestrate and arrange this music and then orchestrate it uh, so they play this music so that it can be sent out and purchased by churches around the country and around the world. And, and, you know, one of the things that's really important if you arrange music and you set the music in front of the musicians and the vocalists is that everybody follows the rules of the music. That if you don't do that, it's going to cause just a cacophony of noise. And that actually by following the rules of what he has put on the sheet, the the music sheet, you may not like what every note sounds like, but it's going to sound a lot better than everyone simply doing it. Just by following these things that you get blessings, but one of the best blessings you can get is that you don't get the curses. You don't get the consequences. It's dangerous not to obey. Just to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. (laughs) I've actually, I've had that put in beautiful calligraphy. <laughs> it sits on the mantle in my, in my children's above their bedrooms. Well, what's he saying there? That's, I mean, that's a harsh rule for crying out loud. It is a principle based, again, on the moral order of things. So let me just illustrate this from the, from the animal kingdom so that you can see it clearly. I love nature shows. Especially, I mean, especially now that we have HD and like 4K. I mean, it's unbelievable the stuff that they show in these nature shows. I was watching one, it was probably, I don't know, Animal Kingdom or something like that, a while back, and, and, and there was, it was in Alaska, and the photography was just stunning, and one of the things that they were showing was the relationship between uh, mom, mamas, and what we see is this beautiful pattern in the way bears were raising their children, I, you know, and some of you would probably prefer to be raised by a bear than the parent that you were given, but they just, this um, unbelievable job protecting and caring and providing for their cubs, and yet, a couple times in the midst of this documentary, right, showing they, they have the danger moments, right? There's two scenes 
where in one in which one of the, 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 the bear cubs almost gets killed because it disobeys its mother and almost falls and dies. And it's saved and you're relieved. But then it shows the moose. And there's a little moose calf and it disobeys and it wanders from its mother and it ends up getting taken out by wolves. This is proverbial. That when you stray out from underneath your parents' authority before you're ready, when you disobey your parents, it leads to destruction in your life. And you want to scream out to that, that calf, what do you call, I don't know what you call it, follow your parents' instruction. Let me illustrate this one out of the way, and then we'll move on to our closing point. I want you to think of Harry Potter. Imagine, so Harry has a hard life, if you know anything about the Harry Potter books. Uh, he didn't ask to grow out without, without his mom and dad. He didn't ask to have that kind of one-of-the-kind scar. He doesn't ha- ask to have, like, demonic things chasing after him his whole life. He doesn't ask to grow up with his awful aunt and uncle, but he does. And so if you were to watch, you've watched the movies and you've read the books, and if you could go to Harry in, in, in book one, and he's, he's facing all of these difficulties in his life, and you could give him what he's going to face. What's the one piece of advice that you would tell him? You would say this, Harry, even when you're confused or angry, or, listen to him. He's trying to help you, not hurt you. And he has a much bigger sense of what is going on than you do. And if you will simply listen to him in general, I can tell you, things are going to go well for you. And that's what Paul is telling you, and that's what the Proverbs is telling you, and that's what God who shaped this world is telling you. Listen to your parents, and in general, life will go better for you. Now, for many of you, we have to acknowledge this. For many of you, obeying and honoring your parents sounds like the worst. It's not joyous. It is difficult because you have unworthy parents, and their parenting is actually an indictment further of their unworthiness. When people in our society hear the term honor the father and mother, often there is a visceral reaction. You have seen their weaknesses and their flaws. And for so many of you, your life, what a good child did. You sought to give joy to your parents and to communicate to them your love and affection for them, and yet you never got anything back. They never communicated to your worth. And they either failed to do so or they robbed you of your sense of worth. Think of the story uh, Steve Martin tells about when his father died at age 83, so maybe you don't know Steve, Steve Martin. And he's at his father's funeral, and his father's friends are there, and they're just saying wonderful things about his father. And they come up to Steve and say how, much they, how generous his father was and how much they loved his father and how loving and generous and caring he was. And Steve said he was surprised at these descriptions of his father. He said, I remember my father not as loving and generous but as angry. There was little that he said to me that I recall that was not criticism During my teenage years, we hardly spoke except in one-way arguments from him to me. I am sure that the number of words that went between us could be counted. He he said that after his first movie, all his friends went out to celebrate with him. And they all noticed that his father, who was at the party and at the celebration, didn't say a single word. And these friends of Steve's, horrified by the indifference of the father, they asked, don't you have anything to say? And all that his dad could muster was this. Well, he's no Charlie Chaplin, is he? This is a man not full of honor. And Steve Martin never got what he longed for from his dad. And so how in the world do you honor and obey a parent who can be so awful? Well, in order to do that, we need some context to this relationship with our parents. It says this, you obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And what that means is this. Here's the implication. 
To obey in the Lord means you honor unworthy earthly parents, and that is every parent in this room. Unworthy earthly parents in order to honor your worthy heavenly father. Obey the parent as if Jesus was the one commanding you. In every one of these relationships, marriage, parent-child, boss-worker, these relationships where Paul is working out submission to Christ, anytime one Christian is called to submit to another Christian, they are submitting to an imperfect, sinful person. Imperfect spouses, imperfect bosses, imperfect parents. And Paul is saying, obey your imperfect parent because behind them is one who is worthy to obey. Now, a side note on this, a side note. That also means you don't disobey, your, you only, don't only obey your parents if, if they're calling you to do something that's plainly wrong, right? This is what's behind my caveat from earlier. But even though your parents may have done a lousy job, you give them respect because of the one who lies behind them whose authority sits behind them, and that is the throne of God itself. And so out of reverence for Christ in the Lord, because of the worthiness of God, you honor your parents. And at this, at this point, in order to see how we're to honor and obey unworthy parents, if we're going to obey even our most worthy heavenly father, what would motivate you and, and incite you and give you excitement to honor God the Father? By coming to experience more deeply the worthiness of your father. To see that he indeed is worthy. Worthy is our father in heaven. You see, the story of parents, your parents may be this, that you did all you could do to get acceptance and love, but their love was conditional and arbitrary. Their acceptance and their approval was fickle and perhaps impossible to receive, but that is not the story with your heavenly father. And for a lot of us, that should be praise be to God. The story with this father is different. And in the story of the Bible, we see a father who is worthy of our affection and our honor. You see, he provided all we needed in the garden. He longed for relationship with us. He provides us good gift after good gift, and yet we rejected him as our father, didn't we? We ran from him. We dishonored him. We rebelled as his children. We became prodigals at war with God, serving our father's very enemy. That is who we were. We ran from his rule and his protection and his provision. We were anything but acceptable. We were bad kids. And yet, God the Father so longed for his disobedient children to be brought home. What did he do? God the Father pursues. He runs after unworthy children who couldn't and wouldn't keep the fifth commandment or any of the commandments. And what does he do in his pursuit? He sends his perfect son to win for himself many imperfect sons and daughters. And that son came and did what we could not do. He perfectly obeys both his heavenly father and his earthly father. And there was one child in this family, in God's family, who perfectly obeys. And that is the one who goes to Calvary and he gets up every morning and Jesus says, not my will be done, but your will be done. And so your older brother kept the law perfectly including the fifth commandment. He kept it perfectly for you. And why did he accomplish perfect obedience? He did it for you. He did it so that we did not have to bear the consequences of our rebellion and so that we could be invited in, back into the Father's presence as acceptable and worthy in his sight so that when the Father sees you, he sees a son and a daughter who is beautiful before him. And this is really important for some of you kids. I'm, I'm, real, real briefly, because I remember this experience as a little kid. 
it's hard to be a little kid or a big kid. I mean, these people are constantly bossing you around. Make your bed, do this. They are riding you constantly, and they're larger than you. They're mean about it sometimes. And as a kid, isn't there sometimes where you just want to go, I suck. I can't get anything right. I am constantly displeasing these people. There's nothing I can do to please them. And you actually, you take that, relation, that same perspective into your relationship with God. I can do nothing to please him. I just, I, I try and I try and I try. And so you words, words like, it becomes self-shaming, right? I'm so stupid. What an idiot I am. But the work of Jesus says this, that you have been covered in the righteousness of Christ. That he has accomplished all that is necessary for you as an eight-year-old, as an 18-year-old, and as a 58-year-old. For God the Father to look at you and say, you are my beloved son and daughter. And you are acceptable in my sight. And it silences the voice that says, I'm foolish and I'm stupid and I'm an idiot. And all the longing of acceptance you had from your parents, you have it in God the Father. And all the longing and the love and the care and the protection and a parent that you wanted to listen to you and know you, you have that in God the Father. So now, you don't please this Father out of some... You don't do what he asked and out of obedience and honor to him in order to get his affection, but you have his affection. That you wake up every day and you say, not my will be done, but your will be done because the first voice that's actually in your head is from God the Father saying, you are my beloved child. And the Holy Spirit is saying, I, I, I have made you mine. And this is the voice over you. And so here's the call. That you would turn to the true Father until you've gone to the real Father in heaven you're going to have a lousy relationship with your parents here on earth. You're never going to get out from underneath the shadow of the way that they failed you or hurt you. You're going to struggle to obey them and their silly rules and their not-so-silly rules. When Jonathan Edwards, who was an old um, American theologian, was dying, only one of his daughters was able to be there. The rest of his children and his wife had gone away for something and he, when he had fallen ill, and he said, I, don't, I know I won't last the night. So he turned to his daughter, Lucy, and he said this, take this down. First, tell my wife I love her, in a sense. But then he said this, I want you to tell your other brothers and sisters that it is now time that they look to a father who never dies. And for some of you, that would be the call for you. That you have a, you have a father who not only never dies, and therefore will always be there for you, but you have a father who will always accept and invite you in. Oh, no, he's not always pleased. He's not always pleased. But he's always loving. And he's always accepting and comforting. And so we have such a worthy father. God is his name. And this loving, worthy father looks at you and I as, the, at the, as the, those old and young and says, I love you and I want what is good for you. And so while you may not have perfect parents in this world, for my sake and for your good, obey your parents, the parents that I have given you. He who has ears. Let him hear. Let's pray. Those of you who are serving uh, communion and our worship team, you can come forward and sit on the front row so that we can serve you here in just a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you that while we may have um, parents who are failing and weak, that while we have a perfect father, 
And we thank you and we come to celebrate what it took for you to, to welcome us back into the family. To welcome us back from a world of perpetual rejection and disconnection. And you welcome back the prodigals. And that it cost the, the body and the blood of the son, the perfect son, who came to cover our sin and to, to pour over us a wedding dress of righteousness so that we may come into your presence always accepted, always available, always welcome into your sight. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd be with us. I pray that you'd, I just set aside this bread and this cup, this simple bread and this simple juice, that, Lord, by taking these things physically, that we would remember that the Father that we cannot see is here with us, and that he's inviting us to this banqueting table to enjoy him now and for all of eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.